Don't you hate it when you're summering in the Hampshires in a giant mansion and the silence is so overwhelming that you insist that your 17 servants must not be in their quarters? Talk about frightening. Welcome back, everybody, to the special Halloween episode of Whiskey and the Weird. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together we are the podcast Whiskey and the Weird, where we explore whiskey and weird stories of yesteryear. And tonight we've got a special Halloween episode for you. Typically, the stories that we bring you are from the British Library's Tales of the Weird series. But tonight we're covering a story uh, that Jess is going to tell you about in just a moment that isn't a part of that series. And we're looking forward to that as well as all of the Halloween hijinks that we're going to get up to tonight. So uh, before we get into those, <laughs> let's do some bar talk. Uh, Damien, what are you drinking? Well, in the spirit of our ghosty ghost story tonight, uh, I decided to go with a tried and true classic blended scotch bourbon and rye by High West called Campfire. Get it? Very nice. Campfire. Yes. Yes. Super, super smoky. It brings in a lot of peat with the scotch that's involved, but also a lot of the other. I mean, it's basically all the best elements of why you would choose one or the other of these whiskeys. You get those vanillas and toffees. You get some dark like stone fruit Mm. in there. It's all over the map, but it's really good. And to be honest, I mean, the smoke sort of, you know, punches you in the face. It's just it's really super drinkable, though. It seems like it would be a little too complex. It Mm -hmm. seems like it's a, a fool's errand to try and do that hardcore of a blend but high west does it and i gotta tell you yeah, I, was happy I like the for, high west stuff they do good work a couple of years i the campfire I, I couldn't find the campfire anywhere i thought they stopped making it i i almost got to the point i was almost this guy that tried to contact the distillery and be like what the hell is this out are you done was this a whim uh but it just hit could the you check the back again, please recently <laughs> 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 it'll take one minute i promise can just you just check. check it back um yeah so i'm super i was super excited to see it back in the mix and it is in my glass tonight over an ice ball as far as other things i mean you know it's spooky season folks and i am loving all the horror that's streaming i'm picking up some good horror books uh but one that i watched recently that i hadn't seen it had been out for a while um, and well, I, I've actually done a series of these where there's all these horror movies that are sort of established in modern canon and I just haven't seen them. So one of them mm-hmm. was Sinister recently. Yep. I watched okay. that. That's a good oh, one. Fun. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool. I like Ethan Hawke. I think he played a good role. Um, also relevant to the podcast. He drank a lot of whiskey through that movie and oh, I was like, okay, I appreciate lot. it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But one that I watched that I hadn't heard of the filmmaker before, but they've got a series of uh, movies after this one was released. It's from 2019. Uh, It was directed by Jeremy Gardner, uh, who it also starred and uh, Christian Stella. And it's called After Midnight. And oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so it's interesting. First of all, the cover art, the, the movie poster for this film is great. Uh, if you haven't seen it, just Google After Midnight. But the story itself was really compelling. It basically surrounds the sudden disappearance of uh, of a woman in a relationship with uh, her husband and she's just gone. And a vast majority of the movie is kind of looking back on the times in their relationship and really establishing them as a couple. 
uh, also in that mix where he is now living alone in this weird, almost plantation-esque house in the middle of some small town is that he's being visited every night after midnight by a monster that emerges from the woods. He, in an alcoholic haze, is firing guns at it. He's a skilled <laughs> always, hunter. Always a first choice. Yep. Setting yeah. traps. Yeah, so it's is basically from Florida? every day is wash, repeat <laughs> with this thing. So the question is that, you know, gets asked very early on is, is he imagining this attack? Is this real? What's going on with the relationship? Where is his wife? And then it all culminates with a great finale. I thought it was extremely well written. It definitely had me interested in more of what Jeremy uh, Gardner is putting out, uh, which I want to say it's a it might be a mermaid movie or something to that effect. It's called Spring. And I was really intrigued by After Midnight. So I think I'm going to go check out Spring as well. So, yeah, a lot's on the plate. I mean, there's a lot of great books. Boy, I love Halloween. It just gets me in the mood. <laughs> it's great. Uh, but yeah. I have to keep it to one. So I'm going to go out ahead and say, if you haven't seen After Midnight, give it a look. See, it's a, it's a really clever spin on your modern monster horror. Yeah, I've, I've been looking forward to seeing that. It's just, it just hasn't made it to the top of the pile yet. So maybe this recommendation will shoot it up there. Mm-hmm. Jess, what, what about you? What are you drinking? Pumpkin beer? <laughs> nope. Nope. I've decided. Because she hates that... them, folks. She hates them. So she's learned her no, lesson. No, I had one. <laughs> At a pumpkin patch, and I'm not going to lie, it's a lot better at the pumpkin patch. Yeah, okay, so, I'll buy that. <laughs> instead, I am drinking a big glass of Beak and Skiff hot apple cider Ooh. with a big pour of Beak and Skiff 1911 bourbon in it. All right, mm-hmm. I'm talking. And I poured it in. Uh, Just like when Grandpa it was, did. <laughs> well, when it was Every still morning. like too hot to taste. And I might have overpoured a little bit. So it's pretty boozy. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this episode. <laughs> so just fair warning. It's delightful. I think everything should be hot apple cider. Um, as for what I'm watching, I've been doing a lot of rewatches because I also enjoy the spooky season. Um, I just rewatched The Black Coat's Daughter, which is the oh, 2015 so yeah. Oz Perkins um, movie, which is about... Um, a couple girls left alone at a creepy religious prep school. Um, it's moody and atmospheric and really smart. And uh, one of those movies that you have to sort of immediately rewatch after the first time you watch it. And then it kind of, you're like, Oh yes. Oh, this does make more sense now. Yeah, oh, it's so, so it's good. definitely like a rewatch one, but I had that on um, the other day and really dug it. Ryan, what are you drinking? Ooh, I am. I am drinking fancy. tonight. And it is a very fancy drink. This is the autumnal Manhattan. It's it's a little bit of a of a creation of my own. So I've started with uh, wait equal before amounts. wait before you explain this. Is that the same glass in which you drank the modern classic, the Cthulhu Takes Manhattan? It is the same glass in which uh. I had the Cthulhu Takes Manhattan. <laughs> uh. This might be a better drink, though. <laughs> and anything would be a better yes, drink. So except for when the, a bartender the like carving, dumps yeah. out their uh, bar mat for all the overspill and pour, <laughs> that's a better drink than the Cthulhu Takes Manhattan. That's funny. I'll tell you what, it, Cthulhu did the trick, though. I had a hard morning <laughs> the next day. <laughs> okay, so the autumnal Manhattan is equal parts, about one and a half shots of... Uh, bourbon. I used Basil Hayden's bourbon and about one and a half shots of Calvados. Now, if you don't know what Calvados is, it is Spanish Calvados apple brandy. See, I can't even say it right. That's right. You got it now. Calvados. Calvados. Uh, so equal parts of that. 
uh, a fair amount of whatever bitters you enjoyed. I used Fay Brothers Black Walnut Bitters. Nice. Uh, a, uh, half a shot of Antica Formula Sweet Vermouth. And the other half of that shot, whatever maple syrup you enjoy. And then a dash huh. of nutmeg. Shake it all up over ice. Pour it into your favorite Cthulhu martini glass and enjoy. <laughs> Folks, this is delicious. This is a great. It's got all those warm autumn flavors that you want. It's got apple. It's got spice. There's two Amarena cherries waiting for me at the bottom of this. Oh, nice. I'm excited. Yep. I'm excited. Gotta love those dirty cherries, too. Do you float a little star anise in there or something to really zhuzh it up? Sell it no, for but I, I mean, I should. I should make notes. I should do that next time. That would be a that would be a great choice for a, a garnish. I will say this, that I think that um, apple brandies like Calvados or Applejack are really overlooked, but always come into vogue when it when, you know, yeah. fall seasons yeah. hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is really a people would just assume that it's a very sweet kind of like mega punch of sugar and a little bit of apple right. flavor, but it isn't. There's a what, complexity there. I got to say what, what I fun things, what I found with them is it's worth it to spend the extra 10 or $15 for the VSOP versions. Sure. Yeah. Um, they, they do tend to be less sweet and more complicated and they're, yeah. they're, they're better brandies. Um, it's not always worth it to spend, spend the extra money, um, for, for fancier versions, particularly with bourbon, you can find great cheap bourbons, but with these, with these Spanish brandies, it's worth it. I think. Cool. Uh, just like you, I've been watching a lot of movies, been reading a lot of books, been reading a lot of short stories. I love those short stories, especially around Halloween season. And I've mm-hmm. been digging, um, this is from a few years ago, but it's an Ellen Datlow collection, Haunted Nights. It's the Halloween uh, nice. anthology that she put together. I uh, just read a great Stephen Graham Jones story in it called Dirt Mouth uh, about a, a man who loses his wife uh, and takes his twin daughters up on the mountain where she died to try to recover himself in some mental or emotional way. And um, big surprise, it doesn't, it doesn't work out. Yeah, the way I bet he nothing intends. bad happens. It doesn't yeah, it go according yeah. to plan. <laughs> but they're all Halloween themed. They all are full of that, uh, you know, sort of uh, fall vibe. There's lots of jack-o'-lanterns and haunted houses and trick-or-treaters and stuff in these stories. It's a oh, lot fun. of fun. Any Ellen Datlow collection is a lot of fun. So yeah. uh, check that out. Haunted Nights. It's from about 2015 or 2016, I think. It's interesting that you mention uh, SGJ, Stephen Graham Jones, because uh, I think he's a pod favorite. We've all enjoyed yeah. his works. Um, I just listened to a recent publication that he had. The Babysitter exclusively- one? The Babysitter Lives. Yeah. That was exclusively released as an audiobook. Right. Um, it was very expertly narrated. It was it was a really fun story. Quick read. Well, quick listen. Quick I listen. Guess. <laughs> um, yeah, and it flows really nicely. It's a haunted house tale. Nice. Um, really good. Just it it screams Stephen Graham Jones. If you like his style of writing, if you like his voice, this is just another one. To I'll add probably to wait the pile. for it to come out on book. I don't think it will. I don't know if it will. <laughs> well, as it is our Halloween episode, I thought it might be fun, you guys, to talk about some of our favorite Halloween memories from years past and maybe some of our favorite Halloween traditions uh, that we participate in even now. I remember uh, my, my favorite memory um, is we would always get our costumes on uh, in the late part of the afternoon, and my mom would have made very classic Halloween dish for dinner, uh, mummy dogs, right? These are regular plain old <laughs> hot dogs that are wrapped with biscuit 
uh, incredible in, in, in the shape of a mummy. Um, so extended extended pigs and blankets is what I'm hearing. Yeah, here. thematic pigs and blankets exactly. Okay, and right. you can, I dig you've it. You've got a, a, a small puddle of mustard, and a small puddle of ketchup, and you can mix and match or just go solo, whichever one you want. <laughs> but they were always my favorite uh, mummy dogs. They somehow they just tasted mummy better. Mummy dogs. That's they just tasted it. better than a regular. Do pig you in a make blanket. mummy dogs for your kids? You better believe it. Nice. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. Absolutely. You know what? If you're if you're looking for, I, and I don't by no means do I want to step on the roots that have been established here. But if you want to expand the hot dog culinary experimentation, if you take a hot dog and you <laughs> slice it in, it, it, I think six is probably the most feasible way to do it. So picture the length of a hot dog. Go mm-hmm. halfway up with a very sharp knife and cut it in half down to the end. Do a quarter turn, cut it again. Do an eighth of a turn, cut it again. This is already too complicated. Turn. So basically what you do is you 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 slice into sixths or eighths the bottom half of a hot dog, okay, while it's uncooked. Then you take that and you throw it in the boiling water. And what it does is it flowers out as it cooks and Ew. it makes tentacles. And then you have Cthulhu dogs. Blooming hot dogs. Blooming hot dogs. <laughs> we'll post something in our social that shows exactly what I'm talking about. Because Follow us for more recipes. Right. Right. My, Who's my... making this? <laughs> There's a lot you can do with a tube steak. I have to finish my memory because after we would finish our, <laughs> our mummy dogs, then the next door neighbors, the Andersons, would come over and knock on the door. And that would be the signal that it was time for trick-or-treating to commence. Nice. Uh, so, so that was that was my Halloween memory. I think if you would ask my parents, their favorite part of Halloween was when we got to this guy's house. His name was Jack. He always had nice candy for the kids, but he always had a beer for the adults. I, there Jack, we go. Yep. I think that was their favorite house to stop. Jack at. knows what's up. <laughs> Jess, what about you? Do you have a favorite Halloween memory? So, all of my Halloween <laughs> memories are of my mother trick or treating. So. We would dress up and we would go trick or treating, but we would always have to be in a hurry. We <laughs> <laughs> you got things to do, kids. Well, we'd have to like, yeah, like, but we'd have to be back because then my mother is is still part of this group called uh, Birthday Club, and it's a group of I don't know ten a dozen ladies, and their activities include just like dressing up and being general like maniacs out in the community. This is a and story. So, they would every year we would have to like hurry it's a cult up. jess I, but like a cult of like you know at the time like 40 year old women are there hoods uh, no even weirder purple they would hats do a group halloween costume but they would oh. always be like something absolutely unhinged like i feel like one year they were all cabbage patch dolls so it was just like yeah. 10 that adult lady cabbage patch dolls or something one year they were hockey players and they would so we would finish trick-or-treating they would all come to our house to get ready have an ample amount of drinks and then they would go trick-or-treating but this was just for alcohol and then they would end up at the bar where but do like, i sign up for the birthday club one year they went as <laughs> hockey players on rollerblades but none of them could rollerblade and none of them are sober and so like those are like i i couldn't tell you what i went for as one i think i was cruella Deville one year but like i can probably tell you what my mother was for halloween every year you know yeah it was as an adult now i appreciate a good group of insane friends but as a child it was just sort of like 
Well, what? No, no, mom, this okay. is our holiday. Okay. I absolutely we'll love it. We'll see you later. We'll see you in five hours when you get home. I love it. That's fantastic. Oh, I want more stories. We every every episode that we do from now on, we have to have a birthday club story. We have involved. A birthday club segment of because a dozen drunken rollerblading ladies uh, <laughs> <laughs> heading around, just causing chaos a tiny in their small town. town. Yeah. Like it's incredible that they didn't die or get hit by a car. That's amazing. Well, there were only four cars in your entire there were only village. Four- so. <laughs> There's probably ten. Cars. Almost got trampled by a horse once. Got hit by a herd of. Heard of heard of uh, sheep that were being shepherded across the the one road. So yeah, all of my Halloween memories are not my Halloween memories. They are my mother's. Let's oh. give it up for Jan. Yeah. Jan. All right. Uh, so I, I mean, thinking back to my childhood, what stands out the most is that my mom adored hand making me a costume every year for Halloween. Cute. So I was her kidikin because I wasn't a man yet. Maybe still not. Uh, so I was my little kidikin, and uh, she would say, "Hey, this this year, what about a caveman? This year, what about Rubik's cube?" Nice. I don't know if you remember when Rubik's cube had a cartoon, but uh, it I was do very not. Cool. But that sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah, Google that. I love the '90s. Uh, anyway, I was Rubik's cube, and um, I was a spaceman once. I was a caveman. I was Beetlejuice, which is Ooh, that's the all time best costume i've ever seen period and yes i was Is in it but childhood i didn't make Beetlejuice. it my my mother went to like joanne's fabrics or michael's or something bought the fabric and made me a beetlejuice pinstripe like that's awesome suit. that is so that's awesome. incredible so we'll share we'll share some photos uh on on our social as well so i owe you a cthulhu hot dog and also some pictures of some me and my baby childhood costumes. Beetlejuice. but they were the best and I would always, because I was so proud of them, I would always try and enter in uh, costume contests when I could. And where we grew up in Southwest Florida, there was the Edison Mall. And every year, the Edison Mall right. had a stage. And this was at a time where malls would do performances in them. Yep. And oh, every yeah. year, they would do a shop-by-shop, you know, kind of a safe, well-illuminated place to trick-or-treat. I never did that. I only went for the costume Because I always contest. thought of the Edison Mall was safe and well-illuminated. <laughs> well, it was back then. Um, <laughs> mall- malls have come a long way, baby. Uh, and gone in the wrong direction. But anyway, I'll never forget that one time I entered one of these contests and there were a bunch of good costumes, but then they did specifically a category for vampires because there were just, there were like at least 27 vampires that tried to enter this. Mm-hmm. And so there were 27 little kids that were all standing up on stage and most of them were like anxious and bebopping around and stuff and just sort of pinballing off of each other. There was this one kid that stood almost dead center of the stage, didn't move, didn't open his mouth, just stared straight ahead the the host of the One, show the hands MC, down yeah the host of the M- <laughs> the mc like went around and started asking all the kids what's your name oh i'm billy you know oh what are you i'm dracula <laughs> and it's like okay you look like everyone else get out of here he gets to the one kid he goes what's your name and the kid says nothing and he says oh okay uh are you are you dracula are you a vampire what do we need to know about you he says nothing and the guy says okay well um Thank you. I guess we'll go on. And he goes to move the kid off the stage and the kid opens his mouth and spits out at least half a cup of fake blood (laughs) that just splatters on the stage in front of him. He starts almost crying and he says, my mom made me do I will never forget that kid as long as I live. Well, what about now? Are there any traditions that you really just really enjoy participating in now? Yeah. I mean, we have our first house now. And so we're Halloween decorating. So I've like made a lot of paper bats this year. 
because we have this screen or uh, like glassed in porch. So we've got a purple creepy light and a bunch of bats. But uh, where we live now is also not wildly populated and nobody's out at night so like i'm not sure anybody's seeing it but <laughs> if jesse's people coming up to her door she thinks of like the strangers and is just like stay away i'm putting everything <laughs> on lockdown stay away unless you tell me you like my halloween decorations well i'm sure i'm sure uh ryan can appreciate this but i'm in the i'm prime phase right now with my two young kids to do family themed costumes and the best we've done so far was where the wild things are this year he's decided that it is a peter pan theme i am captain mm-hmm. hook and and uh, I tried to convince my wife to be Nana the dog, but I guess she's Wendy. My daughter's Tinkerbell. My son is Peter Pan. Uh, so it's always been some sort of theme. That said, That's cool. his his all-time best costume was when he was like two or three, and he was Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, but he was also fascinated with pushing around a doll in a stroller. So I've got a lot of pictures of little cute Stay Puffed pushing around a doll in a stroller <laughs> while he's trick-or-treating for his first nice. time ever. So nice. the family costume is definitely a new tradition. In our neighborhood, uh, actually, it's the next neighborhood over. Uh, they, I don't know if you move in there, if you get a notice or what, but they take <laughs> Halloween to the max yes. every year. It's unbelievable. Like Christmas is not even a thing for these people. Halloween is their holiday. Wild. Every, some, some houses do full-on haunted houses they open up their house and you go through really? it and it's a haunted house yeah everybody's yard is decorated out the wazoo it is absolutely terrific people do themes people uh build on uh the themes that they've done in the previous year there's easter eggs and inside jokes all over the place if you if you go from year to year um the cre- there's some really creepy ones there's one every year that is called the orphanage and they have all these <laughs> no, like, like I'm out. dead dead children in bags on the yard. And, <laughs> okay. And, yeah. And, that's uh that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. And, well, and one of them's got somebody in it. And so when you walk past it, it, it jumps <gasps> up. <laughs> okay. Well, it, I've just vacated myself. So uh, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> the that's fear. I screamed. I was like, Oh, you really got me. You really got me. It's, it's such a great neighborhood. And it's like, Three or four streets, a couple of blocks, um, just just terrific. We have friends that live over there, and they invite us over every year. We love <laughs> trick or treating there. The whole city loves trick or treating there. I think I, I love that level of commitment. I it's, mean, it's you, know, you, huge. Do, you do that for yeah. Christmas or whatever, where it's a very ornamental holiday, and right. you're like, oh, let's drive down the street because there's so many lights and great stuff. It's like, uh, who cares? Show me that dedication for Halloween, and I will make you famous you know with it's all, so awesome with the, that just sounds incredible i, look, I mean only, it's been written about so look it up it's the neighborhood's called the old northeast halloween in okay. the old northeast st petersburg florida check it out online you can Fun. find some great pictures that's amazing i think the only like i don't really get house envy when it comes to anything except for seeing houses with giant decorations there's one house that's near me that does a massive the only decoration they do for halloween is a massive spider web made of probably like cargo gauge rope yeah and one (laughs) giant spider that has to be the size of a mid-sized sedan that is like spanning the entire web that goes over their house that's kind of like that first of all the complexity and the simplicity here I right. notice it. I see yeah. you. I see you, giant. <laughs> they spider. took out a storage unit for this thing. I mean, I'm like, it has to be. Yeah. This thing isn't like an inflatable. It is a legit giant, like 
paper mache Attack maybe of the 50 i don't foot know spider yeah right it's nuts awesome. it is nuts it is it has to be an old like a studio prop or something i look at that thing and i'm like this is perfection so that's the only kind of house mvi yeah no i love this spider. i love this neighborhood and and with kids particularly what i love about it is at least during daylight hours it is very family friendly cool and 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 very much yeah, the oriented orphanage towards trick-or-treating like yeah <laughs> the, 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 the orphanage notwithstanding, family friendly. As soon as you said a bunch of dead kids in bags, I picture family friendly entertainment. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm gonna sign up. I gotta say though, after the lights go out, it all, all bets are off. So yeah. it, it then turns into a little bit of a Gasparilla atmosphere. I bet. <laughs> That's too cool. Well, this this has been fun talking about Halloween memories and traditions. Friends, if you've got a favorite Halloween memory or tradition and you want to share it with us, hit us up on the socials and we will enjoy reading about your traditions. But we are here to talk about a story. And tonight we have one called All Souls by Edith Wharton. She was born Edith Newbold Jones on January the 24th, 1862 to George Frederick Jones, a real estate baron and Lucretia Stevens Rhinelander. Her father's family was fabulously wealthy. I mean, fabulously wealthy. And in fact, it's been said that they are the eponymous Joneses of the popular phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, hey. Yep, that's these folks. Oh, that's those Joneses. It's those Joneses. <laughs> Young Joneses. Edith, known as <laughs> Pussy to her friends, sure. traveled extensively as a girl. Sure. Visiting France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, all before the age of 10. She had an insatiable appetite for learning and a real uh, voracious appetite for reading. But she never read novels. Her mother had apparently forbidden her from reading novels until she was married. A particularly strange edict. Oh, okay. That's weird. Huh. But Edith obeyed. She listened, even though she put a fair amount of energy into rejecting other misogynistic gender expectations, or at least early on she did. She took to writing at an early age, completing several works of fiction and collections of verse in her early teenage years, but never a novel. And then she put a pause on her writing career, apparently to play the role of a New York debutante. Apparently she also put a pause on her rejection of gender expectations and bared her shoulders and mm -hmm. ankles. What? Just Saucy. like all the other young ladies at Deb Balls, word has it, she even wore her hair up. <laughs> oh, Edith. Sh so she showed neck. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This harlot. <laughs> what a tart. <laughs> her writing picked back up, though, and she became extremely prolific, publishing 15 novels after she was married, seven novellas, and around 85 short stories. In addition, she wrote tons of poems, books, and essays, particularly on travel, design, literary criticism of all kinds, and even a memoir. Recurring themes in her work include confinement and trying to break it, revealing hidden truths, repressed sexuality, and one which we'll want to discuss more later in this episode, I imagine, the relationship between the physicality of a house and the emotional status of its inhabitants. In the year 1900, her literary hero, Henry James, of The Turn of the Screw, would finally respond to Wharton's correspondence, and they became <laughs> lifelong friends. 
Having lived a very full and fulfilling life, Wharton had a heart attack in June of 1937, but survived it, only to die two months later from a stroke. Her writing is very much admired even today, and her work is still widely available. Our story tonight was first published in Wharton's own posthumous collection entitled Ghosts, and interestingly enough, it was published the year she died, which might be thought-provoking to talk about in a little bit as well. Last story. (laughs) It was her last story. It was indeed her last story. But before we get to that, we've got our summary, and Jess, I believe you have that for us tonight? Heck yeah, I do. All right, folks, our story- Our story starts with an unnamed narrator claiming that she should be the one to tell this story. No, it didn't happen to her, but to her cousin, who was married to her other cousin. And even though people have made up some crazy things about what happened, she's going to explain what she knows. Our story takes place at a home called White Gates, where she spent a lot of time. It's the home of her cousin, Sarah Claiborne, and her other cousin, Sarah's husband, Jim. After Jim died, Sarah decided to live at White Gates by herself. The cousin explains that Sarah was pretty contrary. No one thought she'd stay at the house without Jim, which might be why she did. Plus, Sarah explained (laughs) that when she died, the house was probably going to go to Jim's next of kin, who she kindly described as the fat Presley boy. So she was... So she was going to stay in the house and probably stay alive out of spite. When Sarah ended up outliving the fat Presley boy, she smiled at his funeral. Uh, Just so we know what kind of person we are dealing with here. The house itself was built around 1780. So it was an old house even for when this story was written. But it had electricity, modern appliances, and additional wings that had been uh, built on over the years. It was miles from the nearest town, which might have scared off any potential new servants. But luckily, Sarah had inherited two or three of her mother-in-law's servants, so she didn't have to worry about anything like that. (laughs) Our narrator says, they seemed as much a part of the family traditions as the roof they lived under. All right, background laid, we launch into the story. It is the last day of October and Sarah's out for a walk. She's only in her 50s, I think, at this point, and she walks three or four miles a day. As she heads to the house, she overtakes a plainly dressed woman that she doesn't recognize. That in and of itself is a little unusual. White Gates is in the middle of nowhere. The weather isn't that nice. And Sarah thinks that she knows most people in the nearby town. So she asks, uh, what's up? The woman says she's going to the house to see one of the girls. She has a strange accent, but Sarah isn't that concerned. She just nods and heads to the house through the garden where she promptly slips on some ice and twists her ankle. Yeah, you know, anytime that you encounter a strange uh, kind of mysterious uh, figure on the side of a road, it's always going to end well. Especially if they're distributing swords. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Cut that. Out and post. Cut it. Cut it. Cut it. All right. The butler and Agnes, our dour, inherited Scottish maid, gets Sarah stretched out inside and they call the doctor. The doctor gets her bandaged up, tells her it's probably fractured, but if she doesn't move it or walk on it, he'll leave it uncasted until Monday when the x-ray guy can come out and verify if it's broken or not. 
if she walks on it now, she could make it worse. But don't worry. It looks like it's snowing. Just hang out. Stay cozy. He asks Sarah if he, she wants a nurse for the weekend, um, not because she'll really need it, but just so she's not alone. She says not to worry with her old servants. How could she ever be lonely? The doc leaves and Sarah is a little bit miserable because she can't sleep or go anywhere. Agnes gets her set up for the night with extra lemonade, some tea and sandwiches, which Sarah <laughs> thinks is lemonade. weird. Extra lemonade? Extra lemonade? Uh, she makes Agnes take the sandwiches and tea with her when she leaves. Um, but Sarah lays awake throughout the whole night. And when dawn breaks, she's annoyed that nobody has come to check on her. She is suffering and she is in pain. She looks at the clock. It's 5 a.m. At 6 a.m., she starts reciting poetry because she's so bored. As the room fills up with light, she thinks the furniture starts moving around her. She just lays there until 8.30 when she runs out of patience and rings the bell to buzz Agnes. She feels bad about potentially waking her, but not like that bad. So she uh, just keeps doing it, keeps buzzing. Nobody comes to get her. Maybe Agnes is sick. Probably not, because even if she were sick, Agnes would have found herself a replacement for the day. Maybe the electricity is out, and that's why the call bell isn't working. She checks, and yep, that's it, actually. The lamp won't turn on. So by nine, she's nervous that something strange is happening because there's been no servants to check on her, and the power is out. So she decides to waddle on her hurt ankle out <laughs> to the landing to try the phone. I think it's more of a limp than a waddle, Jess. I, mean, I don't know. If we're, if we're She's... working with a, a defunct ankle, I mean, what's the what's the proper verb? What's the we got a lot of verbs word? coming up. So she grabs a <laughs> I walking think she chose stick. waddle, and I'm going to go with it. All right, fine. Later, she limps. You know, she gets around slowly and painfully. Uh, she heads out to the landing. She immediately notices how silent everything is. Um, she picks up the phone, of course with a trembling hand and calls all over the house. No answer. She calls all over again. No answer. You get the idea. Just mm -hmm. silence everywhere. Sarah walks herself and her hurt ankle to the next wing over where Agnes and a maid sleep. On the way down the hall, she's struck again by how cold it is. She can see a chimney through the window, but there's no smoke. That means the cook hasn't started the fire and the other servants haven't started their rounds. So... Something is up. He's lazy roustabouts. <laughs> she limps down the hall this time, and she stops to rest at a radiator. It's ice cold. The chauffeur is in charge of the non-fireplace heating, so whatever was going on had something to do with him, too. So obviously the chauffeur is non-present. <laughs> so we've got a chauffeur, a maid, a servant, a cook... So far, that's who's missing. We wander down the hall. We reach Agnes's door. Sarah knocks. There's no answer. So, of course, she just lets herself in. The room is as empty and cold as the rest of the house. So she starts to go through Agnes's things, which are really Sarah's hand-me-downs. Uh, she notices that the only thing missing is an ugly hat and a warm coat. The bed hasn't been slept in, so she knows that Agnes must have gone out last night. But to where? Uh, Agnes would never have left Sarah when she was so helpless and hurt. Mm, obviously, she did. So next, Sarah knocks on the maid's door. There's no answer there. Sarah lets herself in there, too. Goes through all of her stuff. 
and then goes all the way back down the hall to the front stairs to get down to the first floor instead of taking the much closer servant staircase. It seems to get even quieter the further down the big staircase she goes. She's explored her own house at night and has never been freaked out, but today she is freaking. She expects to see the bodies of her dead servants, quote, <laughs> mowed okay. down by some homicidal maniac. Path of least resistance. What could I possibly <laughs> see? A bunch of dead corpses mowed down by a homicidal maniac. Well, and bigger question, what if the murderer is still there? <clears throat> but they aren't there. They aren't dead. Each room, uh, each room she goes through is empty. All of the curtains are open and everything is undisturbed. She thinks it's like the Mary Celeste, the famously mysterious abandoned ship. She's getting more anxious and fearful by the minute and still wandering around on her twisted sore ankle. She creeps towards the scullery because she has the idea that everything that's happened must have originated from the kitchen. As she's <laughs> <laughs> right, whatever. As she's creeping, she hears a voice, a man's voice in the kitchen. It's low. It's strange, and Sarah wishes she had grabbed her dead husband's gun, which obviously she normally keeps in her room. She goes to retreat, but instead falls really loudly. She thinks this will give away, uh, give away her position and that whoever's in the kitchen will come and get her. But the voice just goes on. She gathers every bit of courage she has and looks into the kitchen at the radio that is on. And she faints. <laughs> when she wakes up, she takes a big glug of some kind of alcohol that she finds in the pantry and slowly makes her way back upstairs. When she gets back to her room, she faints again. This time when she wakes, she locks herself in the room. She grabs her gun. She loads it. And she eats the sandwiches that Agnes had <laughs> actually taken with her. Grabs uh, a gun, <laughs> loads it, eats a sandwich. Now we're Just talking. The story regular, really picks up here. A regular Saturday afternoon. Just there like the governess also... from the Blue Laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> At least she addressed the gun in the very first line. <laughs> there is also a flask of booze that she drinks, and she assumes that all of this means that Agnes knew that she wouldn't be there overnight. That's why she left uh, extra supplies for her. She manages to start a fire by herself and crawls back in bed in pain. She dozes off and assumes that she'll die in the cold because no one is checking on her. Cut to a new doctor checking her ankle. The old doctor was called away and the new one is irritated that she's been wandering around on her hurt ankle. Agnes said that she must have gotten up in the middle of the night instead of calling for her. That's right. Agnes is back and Sarah is mad. How could she have <laughs> called for Agnes when the electricity is off? Agnes said, no, the electricity has been working fine. I even tested the bell. Sarah says you couldn't have because she was all alone at night. And Agnes says, the pain has made you confused. Sarah raves on about the cold and the emptiness, and Agnes just looks at her. The new doctor seems annoyed that they are having this conversation while he is there. He also can't x-ray her ankle because she's been walking on it, and he'll come back later in the day to check on her. So Sarah takes some more pain meds and snoozes crankily. <laughs> uh, fact check, judges, crankily, <laughs> word. No, nope, judges ding. say no. Uh <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that afternoon, Sarah summons her cousin by phone and she gets to the house the next day. This is our narrator. Sarah looks pale and nervous and her foot is now in a cast 
The original doctor is now sick and won't be back for a couple of days. Sarah doesn't tell her cousin anything about what's happened beyond the ankle thing. Um, but the cousin can tell that something is weird. When she finally does explain that weekend, it's a couple weeks later, and she says she doesn't want to talk about it with Agnes. She had hoped the original doctor would be back and could somehow prove that 36 hours had elapsed between the doctor's visits, but now he's going on a cruise because he's sick, and I think that's just how you treated illnesses back then. You just Cruising. cruise about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the cousin Fair. thinks it's uncharacteristic for Sarah not to talk to her servants about the mysterious weekend, but the servants seem to be exactly as efficient and respectable as ever. Um, the cousin just makes a point to be on and off at the house over the next year, and everything seems fine and back to normal. Until... On the next October 31st, Sarah shows up at the cousin's apartment in NYC. Her maid is out, so she has to answer the door herself. This is an epidemic. So tough. (laughs) And she sees Sarah standing there in a fur coat looking pale and terrible. She has driven from White Gates herself because she was frightened to death. Our narrator lets her inside and tucks her into bed like a baby. They have some tea and Sarah says that it's been exactly a year since that weird weekend where she saw the woman and everyone disappeared. This all souls Eve, Sarah's been out walking again when she saw the same woman heading to the house. She asks what she's doing. And when she again hears that she's just going to see one of the girls, Sarah forbids her from entering the house. The creepy lady laughed and kept walking, but disappeared completely after walking past some trees. She just vanished. When Sarah made it back to the house, she called for a servant to let her driver know that she needed a ride to New York ASAP. The other servants didn't protest or ask questions, which was very unlike them. They seemed relieved. Sarah interprets this as that they're glad she's not going to be there to interrupt their plans. I interpret it as though they're thrilled that their weird boss is leaving for the weekend. (laughs) She starts to fall asleep and says she'll never go back to White Gates again. The narrator breaks back in, saying she's tried her best at putting all of this together correctly. These are the facts. And now she has the gossip. Agnes is from Skye, an island off the coast of Scotland. Terrific place, really. Everyone knows those islands are just full of the supernatural. Our narrator says that her cousin always thought Agnes could unconsciously channel voices from the veil. But maybe she only realized her full power after meeting the stranger a year before. Because that's when the dead can walk the earth and other weird stuff can happen. There's no rules. Uh, probably the narrator thinks the strange woman was either a fetch or inhabited by a witch. Maybe she summoned everyone to a late night coven meeting and maybe after everyone had gone once, they got a taste for it and never stopped wanting to be witches. That was the best part. Like first one's free after that. <laughs> you're gonna crave it. 1937 says, satanic panic. She couldn't understand why free these mysterious Scottish supernatural events could happen in sunny Connecticut, but she believed it enough that she never went back to White Gates again. Dun, dun, dun. That's it. I, I That's don't know. I, I've seen a fair amount of strange things while under the influence of the Talisker, so I, I don't know. About <laughs> well done, Jess. Well done. Excellent. Yes. Yeah, so 
I think to start us off, I want to ask a question about the setting and the time frame. This story is set at, or at least around Halloween, uh, and I at least read it in a Halloween anthology, uh, although Jess's is much cooler looking than mine was. Yeah, mine does um, have a jack-o'-lantern on yeah, the cover. Yeah, you got a jack-o'-lantern on the cover, so suck it. <laughs> Halloween doesn't seem to figure into the story very much. Why do you think nope. she sets her tail at this at this time, at this Halloween time. Can, well, I, I'm going to jump in here and say it's because it's a crutch. It's because <laughs> it is an easy out to say, like, All Hallows' Eve, various cultures, like Dia de los Muertos. You know, it's all around the time of focusing on the dead in the past yeah, and yeah. spirits revisiting. So what better time to do it? Interestingly enough, it happens at the end of the story where this gets announced. Oh, by the way, it was... All Souls Day. And a Scottish witch. It's at the beginning, too, isn't it? I don't think so. Yeah, I think think that she does say it's all. All right, fine. So we'll cut this in post, too. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) It does, in fact, at the very beginning of chapter one, though it was only the last day of October. Oh, I'm sorry. I read her. I read her poem called "All Souls," so I have zero idea about this story. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But she does. Edith (laughs) does does have a poem poem named "All Souls." Um, I think I think that it's an easy out. I think for a lot of reasons that it's just easy to attribute spirituality, um, the unknown, the supernatural to uh, a a key uh, like a flagship day that for all Mm -hmm. intents and purposes has been established by the living. So I've never understood that, but maybe we can talk about that later. I've never understood why the living dictate a date that the dead abide by. So anyway, um, I it's in the movie Coco. <laughs> Don't bust on my ofrenda, friend. Um I just I I feel like it was a little bit of a why would I encounter some strange woman on the side of the road mm-hmm. oh, it was All mm-hmm. Souls Day? Okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, okay. It, it could be a cop out. It could also be an explanation for why everyone acts bonkers. Had there just been a mm, weird okay. lady who yeah. shows up in April and the house is quiet? Do we get the same story right. versus mm-hmm. if this lady, sh- if Sarah knows internally that it's Halloween and spooky. So like if the have- whole idea, like if you expect something spooky to happen, you're sort of opening yourself up for something spooky to happen. And then, you know, tagging on a little extra justification at the end. of mm-hmm. like, well, obviously we all know this is when the dead walk the earth and right. this lady's a witch. Yeah, that's the thing <laughs> is that I feel like it was an easy means to explain circumstances where I read the story and I look back and I read the story again. I go, the people just left because she didn't need any assistance. She couldn't be up and be mobile. The sandwiches and lemonade were left (laughs) by their servant. She didn't need to go anywhere in a car. So the chauffeur left like people left period Mm -hmm. attributing any sort of spiritual intervention or supernatural causation is just silly. And so I read the story and I was like, this is not a ghost story. I hate it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll get to that in a bit. It's it's just a old baggy person who expects to have 10 people at their whim who twists an ankle and decides that those 10 people are not at their whim and has never been in this situation before. I like the inclusion of that it could like the narrator and her cousin Sarah think it could be ghosts because that to them is the most logical explanation. How can you say that out loud as a human being? Because it could be ghosts. 
it's the most logical explanation. Well, not not to us. We're normal, non-rich weirdos. But <laughs> if you are the type of person who's only ever had 45 servants and they you inherited them and you can't imagine that they could have lives of their own or friends that come to visit or places to go and suddenly they're not there, you and I would think, oh, that lady must have been their friend. They probably went to go hang out with her. Rich weirdos would think, my staff has been abducted by a coven of witches. Or I murdered. murdered. Or murdered. <laughs> right. Like you see that in the story that she is absolutely reaching because she can't possibly comprehend that anyone would ever abandon her. You know, Which, like these are her property, the servants. Like where would they have gone unless somewhere supernatural? Right. So which why I which I don't understand why Edith Wharton decided to take it and try and rationalize that behavior by giving this mysterious character who appears only on All Souls Day and tries to rationalize. I, I just think it was like, oh man, you took something that was just happenstance. And turned it into a, it's this crazy spirit that walks roadside near <laughs> but do you White think, Gates. Come on. Do you think Wharton thinks that? Or do you think that she's saying something yes. about rich weirdos? <laughs> she is a witch weirdo. I, yeah, I, she's I, a I would rich like weirdo. to present a, a, a counterpoint here, which which may become a <laughs> theme. Nobody cares what you think. This is a me and Jess show. <laughs> I, I want to present a little bit of a counterpoint and, and I'm going to get liturgical on y'all. Um, so cool. I, I think that that Wharton um, is doing this on purpose because All Souls Day holds a particularly deep meaning for her uh, as a Catholic Christian. Um, I, I think that she wrote about All Souls Day in this story. She wrote about All Souls Day in a poem. Um, she wrote about All Souls Day in her memoirs. Uh, which which I was able to discover through some research, and I, you know, if, obviously you didn't have time to to do all that necessarily. Um, but I did some research. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying slacker, you didn't do Jess. research. I'm saying you didn't read all the biography stuff. I did, I did probably, um, but I think All Souls Day holds a lot of meaning for Edith Wharton, and and All Souls Day is the day in which Catholic Christians and and a lot of other Christians um, set aside to remember their their deceased loved ones. But it it is the the tail end of a trinity of days yeah. in the liturgical calendar, and I think Edith Wharton might make a mistake here um, because the first of those days is October thirty first, what we call Halloween, which comes uh, from All Hallows Eve. That's where the word Halloween well, ha- comes from. So, but and then even before that, more, you get into the Sam Hain stuff. But more important, it's Hallow Evening, right? Right. All because, Hallows Evening, which gets shortened to Al Hallow. In right, exactly. Even which becomes Halloween. So which then, I thought was very so then, interesting. Oh, All Hallows Evening is the day before All Hallows Day, which we now call All Saints Day. So right, All Saints Day is the day in which uh, Christians remember those people like Saint Michael and Saint Mary and Saint Sebastian and Saint Catherine, the people that have the ST Saint in Bernard. front of their name. Right. Yeah. All Souls Day is the day you remember your grandmother. Uh, so it was a day to remember the particularly, you know, sanctified people versus just the people in your family. Which, of course, that died. is the day after. Which is All the day Saints after. Day. Yeah. Right. So, so in the setting of the story on the day after Halloween, that's really All Saints Day. I think Wharton makes a mistake here, uh, but I do think that she sets the story here because All ha- All Hallows Eve and All Souls Day. Boy, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> I think she sets the story here because All Souls Day is meaningful to her as as a Catholic right. Christian. So I'm just going to I'm, I'm going to defend her a little bit. <laughs> uh, fine, 
do what you I'm will. Not, I'm not criticizing her setting it on this mm-hmm. day. I think that she's doing it intentionally, but I think you can also do it intentionally and be sort of poking fun at the people who yeah. are taking it this right. seriously too. But she's Again. not poking fun. She was she was a member of the bourgeoisie. You know, she this is not this is not someone who's stepping in and saying like, "Oh, well, this like aligns to my beliefs, but it's also something I'm trying to extricate myself from." No, she, she was in it, but she wrote critically about it. Like a lot <sighs> of her stories are Look at these rich weirdos. Okay. Uh, and to be fair, I haven't read any other Edith Wharton, but what I read from this story was this is a rich entitled white author who is writing from an experience as to what real terror feels like for rich entitled white people. And that's what it was. It was someone who was in laid a community up by an called White 30- Gates. Yeah, in White Gates. <laughs> um, it was 36 hours, not a very long time. Her creature comforts were removed. Her heat was out. She only had it was, sandwiches. It was way too quiet. Her lemonade and sandwiches were left outside of her curtain. You know, it was it, <laughs> it read it read like commentary on the bourgeoisie, but also like she's a member of it. It it definitely didn't resonate as something. And I feel like the woman on the ro- side of the road was a device to sort of rationalize and justify that. Like Ryan said, she didn't even get the date right. Like, I All right, think so let's a... let's come to that point, Damien. That's an interesting sure. question. Is there a ghost in this ghost story? No. Is there a real ghost? No. Does the narrator and Sarah think it's a ghost? Yes. Does that make it a ghost? I so the know. lady at the beginning is not a ghost. No, I think she's like a relative. I think she's okay. a friend of yes. the servants. Of one of the servants. Okay. Yes. Who's coming on the holiday weekend to visit their relative. To hang out. Because it's a prominent Catholic holiday. Right. So why then is this published in a ghost story collection? Because Edith Wharton wrote it. And she wanted it to be a ghost story. Yes. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> I think it can be both things. I think for us, it's not a ghost story. And I think for the characters in it, it's a ghost story. It's like when, a When did bodies, it not bodies, become bodies. a ghost story for you? This is it never was. Question. It never established it never, itself it as a ghost It never story. established itself as a ghost no, story for Damien. it never okay. established itself as a ghost story. So I, I feel like I was reading it as a ghost story. I read The Woman on the Road as a ghost at the beginning, at the beginning. Um, but I'm reading this in a collection called 13 Horrors of Halloween, where it's presented as one of two of the preeminent ghost stories of all Halloween stories ever written. So I'm set up for that. Sure. It stopped being a ghost story for me when the voice in the kitchen was demonstrated was to be from the radio. As soon right. as that happened, that's when it stopped being a ghost story for me. And that's when my uh, disappointment perhaps is too strong of a word, but that's when when that's when I took a few fingers away. I'll put it that way. But we'll <laughs> that in that's when I withdrew a few fingers, says Ryan. <laughs> when did it stop being a ghost story for you, Jess? For me, it was not a ghost story at all. Ever. Okay. I'm the only one. I'm the only sucker here. But but, but, you you got suckered. You got conned, bro. I read it as a ghost story for the main character. As soon as she goes downstairs where she's expecting to see all of the servants murdered and they're not there. And then she says something about, oh, it's not a real horror. That there's Mm -hmm. nothing here. So for her, then it switches to something supernatural. Jess, are you serious? Yeah. You're, you're you're qualifying the absolutely insane mental pathways that people go through when they're rationalizing a current situation 
like I say, hey, can can someone grab me a bottle of water? And nobody responds. So I'm like, they're all dead. And then I realized that they're not dead. And I'm like, it must have been a ghost that intervened. Come (laughs) on, man. This is what half of movies are right now. Is is this a ghost story or is this someone's mental illness? Right? Right. This is just a version of that. Sure, it could be a ghost story for her. But it doesn't qualify that as being a valid form of entertainment. And sure, Edith Wharton was writing this 100 plus years ago. Fine, cool. That being (laughs) said, like it still is a cop out tale. It still is a Jerry Bruckheimer film that just relies on, or, or, or like a Michael Bay film that relies on flashbang visuals to take you away from the fact that there's no substance to it. There's no substance to this. It's not a ghost story. It's an old woman who injures herself is in such a station that she expects people to be around her at all times. That's not the case. And she doesn't know how to rationalize it. So she defaults to a supernatural (laughs) intervention. Give me a break. I don't know. Again, I haven't read any other Edith Wharton stuff, but as soon as I read this story, I was like, she's rich. They're rich. She's the rich (laughs) writing about the rich and trying to like make me scared. Can't do it. Sorry. Jess, a rebuttal. I think it's... (laughs) story is smarter than that i think it's making a point of about how dumb these people are i think that these people being the mrs claiborne's of the world yes and and her her sister with the maid right her maid is missing too and she has to answer her own door i can't believe she had to answer her own door i wonder what that was like (laughs) did she know which direction to turn the doorknob so it's set up i think for you to understand that like you know oh this is a fake ghost story but then you also understand how they can justify this because they're just so out of touch with everything that this is what makes the most sense to them. And they're just but like, if, if this was a satirical take on a ghost story, then why is it in so many actual ghost story collections? Yeah. And, and it mean, really is, is at least in a lot of the research I did labeled as one of the preeminent Halloween stories of this era. Same thing with all of the movies where it's, is it a ghost or a mental illness? Just because it's not a real ghost doesn't mean, you know, all mm-hmm. of the movies where the killer was the main character and she was hallucinating the actual killer. Like there was no ghost in any of those. And those are still horror. I mean, it, to me, it's it's a similar thing to like, let's take uh, let's take Jamie Lee Curtis for a moment. Prom night. Great horror film. Halloween. Great Halloween movie. Right. It takes place at Halloween. It's mm-hmm, dripping mm-hmm, in Halloween mm-hmm. imagery. Prom Night's just a horror movie. Yeah. yeah. But I don't this know. Is a, this Halloween is a ghost story. Also maybe, st- but, but it's not a Halloween story. St- Halloween has also established a universe in which Halloween is dominated by Michael Myers as a spectral, undying, unstoppable <laughs> force that murders people at random and no one is safe from. And they stopped him in the third movie. There's a lot of wasn't complexity even about him. <laughs> you know what, man? I just derailed you. Know what? you. <laughs> There's no derailing the D. I put the D in derail. I am just rail. No, look, I mean, I get it. Like, but there is there is psychological questionable horror that's done well. I.e., I really like the film. I think it was in 2015. It was called They Look Like People. Oh, it, I haven't was seen that. A, it was in it's a good. it was an analysis of is this mental illness or is this someone who has a direct line to okay. information about the overtaking of the human race by mm-hmm. an alien invader? Mm. Like 
it the entire film was like that and even at the credits and this isn't spoiling anything you still kind of don't know interesting so i mean that sort of thing is fine but there's a good way to approach that and an effective way to approach that and then there's just a cop-out way to approach that and uh i think edith wharton as a master of words is solid like the writing itself was positive Mm -hmm. and the story itself was crap all right on that (laughs) lovely note i'm gonna move us along are we settled then on the fact that the woman in the beginning at the end is not a ghost, but is probably a relative of of one of the servants who's coming for a visit? That's that's. What I will just all, say not yeah. a ghost. I'm not yeah. going to speculate beyond that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to yeah relative friend. Okay. Someone specifically visited. I liked that explanation. I liked that reading of it, Jess. I'm going to go with that. Nice. All right. Let's 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 turn the page then a little bit. Uh, one way some Wharton scholars have looked at this story is as a metaphor for aging. We know that she wrote it near the end of her life. It was, in fact, her last completed story. What do you think about that reading? Does that work for you? Is this a metaphor for aging? Sure. Or or perhaps even just a metaphor (laughs) for those who live alone? I think those two are tied together, generally, especially like when you're a a woman, you tend to outlive your husband a lot of Mm -hmm. times. And so this is a more realistic scenario of you are living in this big house (laughs) by yourself and the you know loss of independence you know earlier in the story she's described as being like generally fit and walking a bunch right. and and then she can't and then she can't in the middle of right. the story she's yeah. on a cane she's cold she's hungry she's drinking for some reason like <laughs> Uh, I like that she's drinking just because it's there. It's just she's there. like, uh, there was booze, so she poured herself a drink and drank it. That may be <laughs> the most that? honest right. sentence in the story. Yeah. Without a doubt, Ryan, thank you for saying <laughs> that because I was just going to say probably the most identifiable piece right. of this entire thing. It's like, what the F is going on? There's hard liquor. I'm drinking. I'm going to have a, I'll, I'm gonna have a drink. Does anybody mind? It's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> right. It's 8 a.m. somewhere. Yeah, it's like, think- whatever. I've been laid up for 36 hours, so I'm drinking at any time. Time is a construct. I think it definitely works. I, I don't I don't know that I buy the whole this is a story about aging. I think that her own age, she's 75 when she dies. I think that her own age is playing into the the maturity of her writing, certainly. And of course, you know, you're going to think about your own stage in life when you're writing different characters. Um, I do think that it works more on a level, at least for me, it works more on a level about what it's like to live alone and, and the fears that come with that or living in a place in which your circumstances have changed dramatically. I remember one time I was visiting a, a person who was in an Alzheimer's unit uh, at a at a assisted living home. And when I completed my visit with this person, I left and I was walking down the halls. And in these places, if, if you haven't been there in these places, the doors all have electronic passcodes on mm-hmm. them. Uh, sure. the, re- the residents can't just open the door and leave. Um, and so I was approaching the door and uh, I had been given the passcode before by by one of the attendants and uh, another woman, not the woman I was there to visit, but another woman came up and actually grabbed me by the shirt and looked up at me and like, in a terrified voice, but yet a very earnest one. She said, how do I get out of here? <sighs> And it was one of the saddest and scariest Mm -hmm. things I've ever heard in real life because I'm sure that was precisely her question every day. This poor lady 
had just had no idea where she was mm -hmm. and had no idea how to get out. I think it works a little bit in the reverse in this story. Uh, Claiborne knows exactly where she is, but she has no idea why the circumstances are the way that they are. And that sure. must have been terrifying to her. I have some actual research that I did do also. Yes, let's have That's, it, Jess. Well, actual research? That doesn't make for good pod. That's kind of the thing is this is might be a discussion point, might just be a, oh. We'll put an asterisk by well, it say this was actual research like done by Jess. <laughs> So, you got to speculate, bro. That's that's the modern media. The potential boring explanation for part of this story is that in um, some letters from Wharton in uh, 1933, two of Wharton's servants um, were basically in the process of dying. Mm. And after those two died, a third left. And so she was writing in these letters, basically trying to figure out how to go on with her servants like incapacitated and what she should be doing for them and sending one she, she was writing from a position of caring for them or wondering what she was going to do about new servants probably kind of, the latter kind of both yeah so but it was, more the okay. latter it was not necessarily as caring as you would have thought or, or it hoped, just came perhaps, off yeah. where she was trying to figure out if one of them who i i mean it seemed like a dementia issue should be sent to go live at the convent with the ladies there who could I mm -hmm. a kind reading is would be better prepared to take care of her. Mm -hmm. A less kind reading is because it was probably Get this a lady lot of out work. of here. Yeah. An uh, inconvenience. Yeah. <laughs> and so when both of those two servants died who'd been her longtime workers, the third one left because it was so sad and stressful. So at Mm -hmm. nearing the end of her life she was in this she was situation. dealing with this yeah yes where her I, servants... I think we'll accept that as state's evidence i think okay. we can take <laughs> that into the, it does into the... thanks counselor yeah <laughs> it does make the story less exciting because now it's just a biographical her dealing narrative. with her own mental <laughs> anguish about yeah her servants passing but also away. Yeah. feeds more into the uh observation that this character and the supernaturalization of the story itself is just completely an afterthought and that this is just something that was a crappy thing to go through at the time <laughs> as a rich white person who was surrounded by, you know, like lots of the help. most money. Right. She had lots and, and lots of houses. Explain why that help wasn't there twenty four seven. So I don't know. Well, well, perhaps tied to that then is the theme that that's been identified in some of her work that I mentioned in the biography of the physicality of a house and its tie to the emotional status of the house's inhabitants. Do you see that being played out here in, in what ways, if you do? There were specific scenes where she was talking about going downstairs and how everything was so neat, like they had staged it to be so neat. Mm, like obviously mm -hmm, something didn't mm -hmm. happen in the middle of them working. It was everything was put away and neat. And one thing that was a continuous focus was that all of the shutters were open. All of the blinds were open. Oh, so when right. she walks yes. downstairs, it's incredibly bright. It's bright, right. Which is this crazy, you know, like just uh, juxtaposition with how cold and scary everything is that yeah, it's like yeah. also incredibly well lit got which i thought snow was really fun going on yeah i thought that that was the house you get a sense of the house as she's moving from room to room 
um, down the big stairs. I, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that it's written in there that she has to go down the main stairs. She couldn't possibly <laughs> go down the servant stairs. Right, right. You know, and then she goes into the living room, through the living room, through the dining room, into the scullery, into the, you know, like. Well, the, the sense of it that I got that the emotional status of the house, the emotional status of the inhabitants as connected to the physicality of the house was the emotional status of the servants, Right. The sense I get from some from Wharton's writing is that this house is shut down. It's closed for business because yeah. the servants are gone. Mm-hmm. Not because the master of the house is incapacitated. But that's how it is. Yeah. We, yeah. There isn't somebody of the upper crust who would say, like, this house runs on me mm-hmm. <laughs> as the as the master or as the mistress of the house, it's the house runs on the help that keeps the operational processes going. Also, the interesting relationship with the house in that we don't necessarily know if she loves it or if she's staying there out of spite. Mm-hmm. Right? She doesn't want it to go to the, I don't know, nephew or whatever, the ugly fat Or be kid. sold at auction or something <laughs> like that. Right. And so she's staying there when she has other options just so that nobody else can have it. But it doesn't, I don't get the sense that I mean, I she's... Think that, that dabbles in the concept of legacy. The property, the estate is the legacy at this point. And so she, I think, for some obligation, is trying to preserve the legacy. And You're it right. doesn't go to her family. It goes to the right. husband's family. Yeah, the, the wealth, the, in so many of these stories, like the wealth is not in cash. No. Right? That's, yeah. that's what makes yeah. it sort of a gothic... It's in real estate. Yeah, it's in real estate. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why you got to let the help go. You can't. You can't pay them. You're sitting on on mountains of gold in real estate, but you can't pay the help to run the house. Right. Yeah. Right. So, in the introduction to the collection that this story is originally published in, Wharton wrote this: "Ghosts to make themselves manifest require two conditions abhorrent to the modern mind: silence." and continuity. What do you make about that? The silence part makes more sense to me as the obvious answer, right? When you're with your own thoughts for too long and there's no other stimulus, you're going to... Ghosts creep up? You're going to think bonkers thing. I like the other half of that, though, partially because, like, I think about my, like, super weird old house. Yeah. If I didn't know how old it was like if you just walked into my house you wouldn't if know it was how built old in it 1997 is. you wouldn't have right. the same thoughts yeah right you'd <laughs> also have stronger internet i might have better internet it's got I might nickelback have... posters on the wall it's got... <laughs> but like there's never been anything particularly weird that's happened in my house there's some like weird sounds every once in a while that'll be like oh, josh home no i don't think so But I don't know if I would think those same things if I was in a house that was 20 years old, Mm -hmm. whereas the house is very old and not well insulated, but you can't hear what's happening from the living room up to my office. But when I'm in my office, I will hear the sound that is very distinctly someone sitting in this chair in our living room. I know that it's not that because that sound doesn't travel up. But it's something that has made its way up the stairs that sounds like that. Well, that's creepy. It's a little creepy, right? It sounds like someone is sitting in the living room, but I shouldn't be able to hear it, but I do hear it. And then I walk downstairs and nobody's in the living room. And this has happened two or three times now where it's like, I will immediately text people, be like, whoa. 
there's something weird. I hear a weird sound. But like, I wouldn't do that if my house wasn't 200 years old, right. I don't think. Right. But, if I was so in, in my apartment. in my house, in my house, I periodically hear the front door open. And and I know that we're all in the house and that the front right. door shouldn't be opening. And every damn time, it's my father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> I brought you some triple D batteries for uh, your smoke alarm. That's funny. <laughs> I, what do you I, think I, about I, this, Damien? Silence and continuity is the prerequisites for haunting. I love the idea of silence. I think that Edith Wharton portrayed the baffling concept of silence extremely well in this tale. Mm-hmm. Extricating the fact that the that the protagonist was just someone I can't identify with whatsoever. The observations on silence and the impact of silence for her in her daily life were very well explained. Like there is a tangible silence that exists when people are there and just not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And then there's a silence when the people just aren't there and differentiating those two, I thought was really effectively laid out in the story. So, so, so I think fa- factually, are, are these servants actually vacated the property or are they just in their own wing? I think they vacated. You think they, yeah, left? I think they're, and who's gone. the woman coming to visit? Well, it's she the... can come and grab her and be like, Hey, we're going to the bar tonight. Yeah. You we're know? going to TGI Fridays. We're, we're going to get some Jack Daniels boneless chicken tenders. And we know the TGI Fridays in town is five <laughs> miles away. And I'm going to walk up to this house and then walk to <laughs> The chauffeur is going to take us. Yeah, yeah. The chauffeur is missing. Okay, maybe the chauffeur took him. Yeah. Well, to to both Damien and Jess's point, here's (laughs) another great quote. Uh, This is this one is on the silence. This is just beautiful. And uh, even if this didn't come up, I was going to read this one as a great example of writing. She rang up the pantry. No answer. She rang again. Silence. More silence. It seemed to be piling itself up like the snow on the roof and in the gutters. Silence. How many people that she knew had any idea what silence was and how loud it sounded when you really listened to it? It's a beautiful description, but also a description from the perspective of a person who has never experienced this. Well, she qualifies it as how many people does she know who have experienced this, right? Like she, if you are a rich weirdo and you only know rich weirdos with house full of servants. Yeah. Then you don't, this is a you new don't experience. have this experience. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> All right. Did the scare hold up? <sighs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the scare of being. A oh God, Jess, you're doing lonely. it. You're doing the Jess thing, which is trying to qualify a scare based <laughs> on the, like the lowest common denominator of why this story wants to scare you. I Jess, think it... did the scare hold up? <laughs> yeah, it was scary. I felt uh, fear ridiculous. while reading I'm out. this. I felt fearful when she's creeping down the stairs and isn't sure what she's going to find and she hears a voice. Yeah, I got chills. Damien. I was 0% scared in this story, <laughs> period. Ryan? No qualifiers. So I was scared through the middle section. I thought the middle section was very creepy. Right. I thought it was a great buildup of dread. But I, I really wanted an actual ghost. And really what I wanted out of this story was more than one ghost. And so when I got no ghosts, I was no longer scared and also sad. Okay, Fair. cool. So <laughs> you, you, you got ramped up only to not finish. I want you to remember this when you're giving your fingers. <laughs> 
I will remember it. And so let's move on to the doling out of fingers. <laughs> whiskey ratings, how we rate our stories here on Whiskey and the Weird. Between zero fingers of whiskey and the coveted full fist of whiskey. Well, Damien, let's start with you. One and a half. And here's why. It was not a ghost story. It was not scary. It was not fully fleshed out. It was an observation on bougie triggers. There was no payout. There was no real like development of any tale. There was nothing. It was a series of here's what's happening. And then at the end, it was a stretch for explaining the unexplainable, which is I passed by a human who was here on the same time every year which was around All Souls Day, which gives me a title, but I can't qualify, <laughs> quantify, or otherwise explain why they're here, what effect they had on the entire action of my previous year's 36 hours of tumult. It just sounded like a whiny Karen, one and a half fingers. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in because uh, I think I'm going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum, but I don't think it's as broad as Damien's expecting it. I'm giving it three and a half. I'm giving it okay. three and a half because it it was a little long for me uh, for the amount of action that it contained. I wanted ghosts, as I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, but besides that, I thought it was a very enjoyable, creepy story to read up until the point where the radio was was discovered to be a radio. <laughs> up until the point that I hated it. <laughs> well, I didn't hate it then. I was just I was just disappointed. Okay. Um, I think that's a dubious inclusion in Halloween themed anthologies. I mean, I get it. I get why they put it in Halloween anthologies. It says it takes place on the 31st of October. But for my money, I wanted more pumpkin spice. Three and a half fingers. <laughs> Jess, what's up? So like Sarah, who lives in her house out of spite, the more I've had to defend this, the higher my rating is going. <laughs> God. I, I had a four and a half. I'm Whoa! rounding up. We're going five fingers. I think this story is delightful. You are not serious. Did you just give this a fist of whiskey? Yeah, I wrote five. You are and then not. I wrote oh my serious. gosh. I thought I was coming in on the high end Out of three and spite. a half. Out you of spite. Ja- you know what, <laughs> And then Jessica, Damien just was... rails against it forever. And that makes We're the just gonna all say the more right delicious. Now that Jessica has been compromised. Jessica is no longer a viable source of unbiased information. She has been compromised. I love a moody, creepy tale. Uh, We should have figured that out when she said that she found a pumpkin spice beer that she liked. No. Yeah, that's true. this, This is hurting my brain. Five fingers. I love it. And I love that the range on this story is between one and a half fingers <laughs> no, and five fingers. I hate fingers. Jessica. And I hate the rating. And I hate the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's only fair then that our if this, then that goes to the one who gave five fingers of whiskey to All Souls by Edith Wharton. Jess, if people liked this story as much as you did, what else should they check out? You know what they should read? They should read the novel from, let's say, 2010 called Dark Matter. It's by Michelle Paver. Might be pronounced Paver. I'm unsure. It's also set in the 1930s, but obviously written in 2010-ish. It's about an Arctic exploration. It is another one of the stories where you are unsure if it's a ghost story. Is there a haunting going on? But it has a lot of these same themes of... Uh, dealing with silence and being alone mm, and the, mm-hmm. like the cold environment and 
trying to figure out how to fend for yourself. It's obviously the Arctic version of this. So it's not just a rich lady who has to make her own fire for the first time ever. Um, but it's a really good atmospheric read if that's kind of what you're in the mood for. Well, I'd be inclined to check it out, Jess. I don't think Damien's going to read it just because you picked it. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for our special Halloween episode, friends. <laughs> we're so glad you could join Moving us. Moving on. We yeah, have where Jess and Damien come to blows. Enjoy this. What's going to happen this is in our the next season? Special and final episode, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> only one will survive. There can be only one. This is Highlander. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We're glad that you're here. If you would do us a huge favor, take a moment and drop a rating or a review wherever you catch your podcasts. We would deeply appreciate it. As always, we want to thank Dr. Blake Brandis for providing the music for Whiskey and the Weird. Uh, Damien, if indeed people do want to speak with you, where can they find you? <laughs> I'm always watching. I'm always listening. And you can find us at, at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram, at Whiskey and the Weird on Instagram. We're also at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. Uh, we spell our whiskeys with an E. We hope you do too. If not, then I'm going to send Jessica to your house to explain why this story was good. And then she'll probably drink all the pumpkin beer in your <laughs> fridge and call it a day. You well, Jess, while you're, while you're doing that, if people want to get a head start on the next story that we're reading, what, <laughs> what can they read? Up next, it's The Body Snatcher by Robert Louis Stevenson. Excellent. So good. Excellent. The Body Snatcher brings us back together. So I think. good. Yeah. <laughs> to good, to good we'll stories. Be, we'll be friends again by that one. We I also so. want to let you know that in a couple of weeks, we'll be uh, having another special episode, a wrap-up and interview episode for season three with the editor of Promethean Horrors, Xavier Aldana Reyes. So we look forward to that and we thank him in advance for agreeing to be with us for that episode. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird, reminding you, as always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. Take care, everybody. Happy Halloween. That was right on the Give first me your candy. <laughs> I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everyone. <laughs>